0: Okay, are we good on the recording? Test one, two. Sounds good, okay. Okay, go ahead. go ahead. How do people see monitoring and evaluation in one word? Not again. Challenging. Burdensome or burden. Burden. But I think that that's starting to change. What could monitoring and evaluation be? Um, um, an opportunity. Opportunity. I like that, an opportunity for improvement. What would you say? See, I think for me, there might be a lot to learn but that once you, once you do, you can see how useful it is. I want to make data fun. You're listening to the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Assistance, or META, podcast. Improving the collection, management,
1: analysis, and use of data
2: to improve outcomes for refugees in the US. Brought to you from the International Rescue Committee with the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement.
0: META. Welcome to another episode of the Meta Podcast. My name is Meg Gibbon, and I'm the Program Manager for the Monitoring and Evaluation Technical Assistance, or Meta, project. Today, we'll be talking about what we know and don't know about nutrition and food security programs serving refugees in the U.S. We'll talk about evidence-based designs and about how we can fill evidence gaps. And so we're really excited to be joined by two guests working in this field. First, Rachel Danifer is the Director of Research and Evaluation for the Harlem Neighborhood Health Action Centers of the New York City Health Department. She has evaluated a number of programs to improve neighborhood food environments and to increase fruit and vegetable consumption among low-income New Yorkers, and has past experience in programs focused on immigrants and refugees. Rachel was recently honored by the New York City Food Policy Center at Hunter College as one of 40 people under 40 working to transform the food system. Thanks so much for joining us, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And we are also excited to be joined by Eugenia Gusev, a technical advisor for food security and agriculture programs for the IRC. Her focus is on the development and support of programs that target food security, nutrition, and urban gardens and farms across the United States. One of her areas of expertise is monitoring and evaluation, including work to develop evidence-based programs, boost field and capacity and develop evaluation tools. really happy to have you here, at Eugenia.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
0: So across programs serving refugees in the U.S., a lot of service providers are trying to move towards delivering more data-driven and evidence-based programs. And I'd like to start by talking about what exactly we mean when we use these terms. So first of all, data-driven programs are programs where data shapes the design and informs decision-making throughout the program's lifetime. And when we use the term evidence-based, we mean programs where existing evidence has been used to inform the theory of change in the program implementation. And there are different levels of evidence, but typically we're talking about information that demonstrates with a high degree of certainty that a given intervention leads to a particular outcome. Uh, But there are also areas where we just don't have enough evidence yet, and those provide opportunities for evidence-generating programs. So, with that uh, as our starting point I'd, I'd like to get into what areas within food security and nutrition programs are already supported by a strong evidence base so I'll start with you, uh Eugenia. Would you mind introducing us to some evidence based models that you've used in your work?
2: Of course, so Some models that I currently work with include the community health promoter model, which focuses on hiring members of the refugee community to help support newly arrived refugee families in staying healthy in the United States, um, teaching them about financial management, self-advocacy, and navigation of the healthcare system. There is quite a robust history, in fact, of impact um, with this model, um, going all the way back to the 1970s with the promotores de salud, The CDC has a great policy evidence assessment report that has a really nice summary of where the evidence base is strong with regards to how this model is applied. Another area where I'm working is around promotion of food access and improved nutrition through incentives. The incentives policy piece right now is an area where donors and organizations are actively building out an evidence base. It's a very interesting and evolving place to be in right now. Both of these models are also used a lot abroad in development and humanitarian aid settings. And as I said, um, there's quite a lot of emerging studies right now, um, as there's really different types of applications of these models.
0: And what about you, Rachel? Can you talk a little bit about the evidence-based models that you use?
1: Sure. And I I think I will first start by echoing evidence is emerging. Um, So we're often adapting evidence from other interventions to try to fit a new audience or a new space. I think one way we go to evidence-based programming is through just the curricula that we choose to use for nutrition education. One program that we have, we use a USDA-approved curriculum that's been tested and has an evidence base behind it. We really are often in a situation where there isn't an evidence base. I mean, when I first started working here, I was evaluating a program Um, called the Healthy Bodegas Initiative to encourage corner stores to carry fruits and vegetables and other healthy foods. And that was almost 10 years ago. So that was really at the beginning of doing any of that kind of work. And we sort of had to collect our own evidence. And sometimes it was like, actually, no, this this isn't working. (laughs) This isn't the right direction. So we need to try something new and test that and collect data on that, go through that process until we get things going in a direction we're happier with.
0: Yeah, it can be really hard to live up to these kind of expectations about designing and implementing evidence-based programs when the evidence that we would want isn't out there yet. And so I'd love to hear more about these challenges. What are some of the the hard parts when it comes to evidence-based food security and nutrition programming?
2: I think one of our challenges in this field is related to the measurement piece. So how do we know if what we're doing works? To know this, you'd ideally need to have a set of measurement tools, surveys, proxy measures, other forms of data, and maybe even an impact evaluation to really prove correlation between what you are doing and the impact you are having. Finding the evidence-based tools is often challenging, and when they do exist, they may be hard to apply to our given population. One example is dietary surveys used widely by the medical community and tested and validated by very large studies. So, for example, the National Cancer Institute uses them for their large population studies. These tools often rely on participants self-reporting their answers. So being fluent in English and being able to read and write are critical. For the newly arrived refugee populations that we work with, this would not be a tool that we could apply. Turning this tool, so adapting it, into one that is used with an interpreter and our staff requires more resources and time. And even then, the results can sometimes be inconclusive. On the positive side, there are some tools that exist out there, while less specific, seem to cross this type of barrier, like this USDA Hunger Index tool, which is based on the universal concept of hunger and has actually been used as a basis for a similar international development tool now used abroad. One underlying challenge to this and also for impact evaluations is finding funding that would support both implementation and research. Often we have to find separate donors to provide us with enough resources to do both well.
1: Yeah, I, I think those resonate quite a bit, and especially the comment about a evidence-based approach or evidence-based tools that don't resonate with either the geography you're operating in or the population that you're working with. To give an example, I'm working on a project where one thing we think is going to come out of it is improved social cohesion and social support. So we were looking at tools to measure social support. And this is a project with residents of public housing in New York City, generally a lower income population. And there were questions like, if you wanted to get away for the weekend, do you have someone you could ask to go on vacation with you? And just things that felt like they would be totally dissonant with the population we were working with. They're not likely to have the disposable income to sort of take off on us for the moment vacation. So things like that, you really have to kind of look at critically to think about what's going to work for our, our audience.
2: Yeah. Um, I think it's, we shouldn't despair. It's an exciting field to be in right now, and there's a lot of really interesting and emerging studies, but we, I think we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we, we don't know a lot, and that's okay, but we should certainly strive to know more.
0: I think that's a great transition, actually, to one of the, the next pieces I wanted to focus on. Um, what areas do you think we should prioritize when it comes to research and generating evidence?
1: I think, well, one, I think about the food environment and how people interact with their food environment, um, how people make decisions about where they're getting food, how they're managing their food dollar. I think there is a lot we know about that, but I think there's still a lot we don't know. Through all the work I've done with the health department, one thing I'm really convinced we've established an evidence-based for at this point is people in New York City shop at corner stores, or we call them bodegas, a lot. Most people in low-income neighborhoods go to corner stores every day. Many people go into them more than once a day. But we've also learned they're not doing grocery shopping at these stores. So now that we've established that, we have more to learn about how are they filling in the rest of their food shopping and what exactly is the role of these stores in their lives. And how can we learn more about that to develop appropriate
2: programming in those spaces? Anything that can help define social policy broadly would be really essential and important for our work and for the people that we work with for for the positive outcomes that we're seeking more specifically from the food security perspective I'd say um, looking at local food systems and how reinvigorating them and supporting them can have a positive impact on local economies and communities we see it firsthand we know that it's happening but I think being able to show some statistics um, you know a rigorous impact study to that effect is needed I think there's there have been a few Studies done, but I think there's just not enough conclusive, rigorous evidence right now. And as you mentioned, Rachel, kind of social cohesion. I think it's a really interesting field to study. When people come to this country and they've left everything behind, they they don't have the same types of safety net or social networks that uh, someone who's been here for multiple generations has. And there have been some studies showing that you know isolation obviously impacts how well someone uh, lives their life, right? How well they they do economically, how their health is. Um, But I think that learning how we can help counter this isolation in an impactful way would be really important to understand resiliency and kind of even broader um, topics such as impact on intergenerational poverty and health.
1: And another thing I'm very interested in learning more about is financial incentive programs for fruits and vegetables. There's evidence that these work and they're an important way to help healthier diets, but what's the right incentive amount, how much does it have to be, and what are different practical ways to get those types of incentives into people's hands are all, all questions I think we're trying to still figure out.
2: We're on the same page with you on that, Rachel. We're in the midst of a four-year project funded by USDA looking at exactly that. Um, There are a lot of players in this one, and there is also a national evaluation looking across all the different organizations implementing across the nation.
0: Great. What are some ways that you would recommend folks can get started in this space? Where can they even begin to look to find existing evidence? And then how can they actually go about using it in designing their programs?
1: Well, I am a public health person. So one resource I use all the time is PubMed, a database to search for peer-reviewed journal articles. And people are reporting out their intervention, their results, their findings in a very standardized way. So that can be a nice way to both look for, well, what were the tools that they used for their evaluation? And then also what were the elements of their intervention and and was it successful? Another resource I would recommend is there's a SNAP-Ed evaluation framework, and they have a lot of great evaluation resources. and. They basically have this toolkit you can comb through to look for, if this is my outcome, what are some indicators I can set up, and and what are some survey questions I can use. Another journal I'll mention is the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior. They, they have a lot of very sort of practical like evaluations of different types of nutrition education programs. Um, and they also have a webinar series, which is useful on sort of issues related to research and evaluation. And then I will just share one last very broad resource, which maybe all of your listeners already know about, but the American Evaluation Association, not so much about evidence-based, but more about tools for developing evidence and for doing good evaluations.
2: I think if you're looking at nutrition, a lot of what you might find is more in the medical field. National Cancer Institute, NIH, one journal is The Lancet. Um, If you're looking more at kind of poverty-related articles, um, one organization that's been doing a lot of this work, actually, that is New York-based. It's called MDRC. They're a social policy organization, and they've done uh, a lot of studies since the 1970s that has really impacted U.S. policy. But I think also sharing sharing information, talking to your peers, um, and sharing your results, successes, and your failures. I think it's so important for us to learn from each other in this field. Um, and ultimately, if you have if you have found and you've done a, a, a really a good study, you should try to publish um, yourself as well and to try to get it peer reviewed so it gets out there. Um, so the evidence base is what you want to start with, um, and, then, and then you really want to think through, you know, if you're designing uh, a study alongside of a project, you want to try to develop an evaluation protocol. So that, that really helps to kind of plan out, you know, even if you don't have funding yet, just to think through, well, what is this going to take? How many staff am I going to be engaging with this? And do they have time for this? Or do we need to hire additional staff? And how, how much time do we actually need to do this? thinking ahead a little bit about the time required from whoever is managing the study downright, you know, to the implementation staff who, are, who have a lot of other responsibilities. Um, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is not, not giving that enough thought or thinking that we do. But in the end, um, you know, things are always a little bit different in reality.
0: Well, thank you both so much for sharing, you know, so many rich insights about what's been effective and and what challenges you've encountered in in your programs, as well as all these great resources that you've brought up. We'll be sure to link all of those on our website along with the podcast itself. And I want to say a thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We want to hear what you think of the Meta podcast. What other topics do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing meta at rescue.org and following us on Twitter at USMetaSupport. As always, you can learn more about Meta at metasupport.org. Thank you again, Eugenia and Rachel.
2: My pleasure. Thank you. Same here. Thanks so much.